Sometimes you're the first one a founder pitches their idea to and their vision to, you know, and it might be a truly life-changing, you know, innovation. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Alex, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. You are an investment manager at the Zurich-based VC firm Red Alpine, a very well-known and also highly reputable firm, I would say, probably the best-known VC here in Switzerland. And we asked our community and the B-Advanced community about questions that they want to ask you. The first one that we got is about your personal day. So, can you walk us through a day in your life? What does the day of a venture capitalist investor look like? <laughs> I will probably say something that's incredibly cliche, but there genuinely isn't uh, a day that is typical for us. Um, I think that um, we would divide our day up into probably a little bit of um, due diligence work or deal sourcing that involves talking to a lot of entrepreneurs and founders. Um, then. Part of our day will be spent working with our portfolio companies and how much of that we do depends entirely on the company and what stage they're at. Uh, we obviously try to engage a lot with our peers, other VCs, um, understand what's happening in the ecosystem. And then internally, of course, we have a lot of, um, you know, debates and we challenge each other's ideas about what a good investment is. Mm. And this is probably the part I enjoy the most. Uh, it probably is the leftover of my law degree. Um, but we, we do talk a lot to one another. We exchange opinions within the team. And I think that's what really makes it um, quite interesting and challenging at times, too. Nice. Sounds like quite some intellectual stimulation that keeps you busy here. Absolutely. And uh, that's what, what I like about it. It's never boring. Nice. Is there a certain ratio that you can say, you know, how many hours you spend on new potential investment cases and how much of your time you spend on existing portfolio companies approximately? I think it's it, it's entirely dependent on the deal flow and the quality of deal flow. Sometimes it comes in waves. Um, we, we somehow get a lot of really good companies that require our attention. Mm -hmm. And then we would spend most uh, of our time on that. Um, however, there are also situations. So when the lockdown first happened during COVID, for instance, a lot of our portfolio companies um, needed our help and support. And that's a time when we were more focused on that part. Um, having said that, I mean, again, I don't think there's a rule. Uh, so it entirely depends on, on the time, really. You have to stay flexible, so to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. And people also wonder, how did you actually become a VC? Because that's not like the traditional career path where you're at university and say, now I want to become a VC. So how did that happen and how did that go? Yeah, I kind of feel I fell into it. I didn't really become it, to be honest. Uh, I think when I was at uni, I didn't even know what VC was, quite frankly. Sure, um, yeah. But um, I, I obviously, my background is in finance. I was on the trading floor for five years. Then I started my own business. 
joined a VC fund in London for a while before joining a unicorn, now a unicorn back then it wasn't, um, startup again. So I feel that VC really combines both the financial background that I had, but also the entrepreneurial, the techie. And I really wanted to get exposure to lots of different ideas. And within a VC, you're incredibly lucky to get that exposure. It's sort of the first, sometimes you're the first one a founder pitches their idea to and their vision to, you know, and it might be a truly... Uh, life-changing, uh, you know, innovation. Um, so I, I think that this is where I sort of decided to go into VC. The sweet spot, so to say. Exactly. Combining <laughs> two of the best worlds. Exactly. <laughs> nice. And yeah, you mentioned that the trading floor experience, you used to work uh, for Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, like, what experience has that, you know, brought to you that also makes you a good VC? So what did you take away as learnings and skill sets from that time on the training floor, which I imagine it was a pretty intense time. Yeah, it was pretty intense indeed. Um, very steep learning curve and undoubtedly it shaped who I am today as well. Um, I think one of the biggest skills probably that I learned took away and I'm still using now is um, the ability to stay calm and not panic and maneuver through a maybe sometimes hairy or difficult situation. And um, especially during moments, again, I will sort of go back to the COVID situation. That's one of those really unprecedented black swan events mm -hmm. um, that none of us really probably were exposed to during their lifetimes. And I think the ability to hopefully stay calm um, also with the founders during board calls, um, hopefully that helps also the founders to stay calm. Right. Um, I think obviously uh, things like uh, negotiation, stakeholder management, these are all things that I had to do back in the day when I was on the trading floor. Um, and what I probably took away, which is not so much a skill, but I would say is immensely helpful right now is the immense network I have built during my time at Goldman. So a lot of my colleagues uh, from back then now have moved on to doing other things. And I find myself continuously reaching out to them for, you know, okay. introductions, feedback, brainstorm sessions. And um, it's been incredibly fruitful so far. So I think that's one of the biggest bonuses of having been in that environment. Right. I think that many people they use uh, in investment banking or also consulting as sort of uh, an additional education, so to speak, after university to then work around uh, smart people, have this deep learning curve that you described to then go to their next project or business that they found themselves, but then always, you know, come back to that network and the skill set that they learned there. And they all have very diverse jobs now and are involved in very diverse industries and sectors. Um, so it's, it's really great to see how they've evolved and moved into incredible opportunities afterwards. And um, yeah, certainly very helpful for me as well. <laughs> I can imagine. And I also wonder, just out of curiosity, you know, these times, they must have been really intense, as you just described. Uh, but you always, you know, re remain calm. And how did you stay fit and, and calm during all these times? Because you sit here now and <laughs> you make a very calm and also, you know, healthy and fit impression. But I know that this could also be the other way around when you, when you really work a, a lot, you work very hard during these, these years to, to move forward, to move ahead. So how did you take care of yourself during that intense time? I will do a little bit of advertising here. Sure. Uh, <laughs> 
I, I go, well, I try to stay fit by, um, firstly, I think it's important first and foremost to look after yourself. And I think if you don't look after yourself, then it's very difficult to do a good job or um, help other people out. And um, you, how do you look after yourself? I mean, try to sort of eat healthy, um, sleep, do exercise and have some time um for maybe some people do meditation, for example, or yoga, have some time to reflect, to have a, take a, a bit of a distanced approach to what's happening about around you, to be able to really have a, a bird's eye view on the situation and not get get too bogged down, um, you know, in the nitty gritty. So I think that's what I would probably suggest. Uh, but I'm still learning myself. I'm by no means an expert at it. But these are some of the things that I'm using to to sort of keep myself, uh, you know, grounded during sometimes difficult situations. You seem to have managed that pretty well, I would say. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so let's also look at the investment process. That's something, you know, startups and people from the startup ecosystem are really, really interested to learn more about firsthand from your VC perspective and experience. So the first question is usually, how do startups best get in touch with you? Is there any sort of channel that you would recommend or what's the best approach mm -hmm. there? Clearly, the sort of most effective or efficient way to do it is via a sort of warm introduction. So if you see on LinkedIn that we are somehow connected uh, via a mutual mutual sort of friend or, or professional relationship, then probably the most successful way to do it is go via that route. Clearly, that's not always as easy as that, um, in which case I would suggest to just reach out to us via our email uh, or via LinkedIn. I personally really try to go through as much as possible. It might take a while before we get back to you because we just received so many requests. Um, so the one suggestion I would probably give you then is to write a very crisp and short message and attach your deck. And that makes it much easier for us to assess the opportunity and give you constructive feedback much quicker. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, a great example that comes to mind of an email that stood out in your inbox where you said, oh, there were so many emails that I could have replied to, but I actually replied to that one first because it was that crisp and it really caught my attention. That's a very hard question. I have to admit um, that all the messages I've been receiving recently, they're very, very long, even on LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, even today, I received a very long message and and then you sort of put off on the get-go. One of probably um, biggest abilities or skill sets is to do the elevator pitch. So let's say, you know, you're in the elevator with a CEO of a big company and you need to sell your idea or your business in those two seconds that you're with him and you have his attention or her attention. And, um, you know, I think that's already one part of the assessment of the, you know, of um, of your skill set as a founder. How, right. how well can you sell yourself? I wouldn't say I have a perfect example that comes to mind right now, but I'll get back to you on that one. Okay, great. Or are there any points that you particularly look for in that elevator pitch, in that ideally over email or LinkedIn, a one sentence pitch and you get what, what they are telling you, right? So there's two different ways. One, I think, is the vision-based pitch where you really propose to me what are you going to become? What is your sort of North Star? And I think that sometimes can really catch your attention. You're thinking this person is super ambition, ambitious and they really have the hunger to get there. 
Um, another way is just to make a problem statement. What is the biggest problem that you're trying to solve and how are you going to be the person to solve it? And I think these are the two things that would, for me at least, stick out the most. Cool. I think that makes a lot of sense. So then in that case, that would be the best way to approach you without a warm introduction by just giving you this small elevator pitch uh, with the vision or the problem. Correct. Focus. Okay, Correct. got it. And then, you know, once this first contact actually happened, so you uh, they caught your attention, this startup, what happens then? Do you reply to them and say, let's schedule a meeting or a call or what's the potential next steps that you take from there? So typically I would ask for a deck if they haven't sent me one already mm -hmm. um, so I can digest all the information, better understand the space and the product um, and the idea. And if, uh, you know, I, I still have some questions or I'm actually intrigued to find out more, I would suggest a phone call. Mm -hmm. A phone call is incredibly important because you get to know each other better. It's also great for the founders because they get to know you as an investor, which is just as important. Sure. And um, and you can sort of question their assumptions, challenge their ideas, and uh, get, a, get a gist for how they work or what their visions are. Mm -hmm. And once that goes well, we would typically discuss the case internally with the entire investment team. We have a deal flow meeting on Mondays, so we typically discuss it on Mondays. Right. And um, if the team is sort of curious to find out more and they think that it's something they want to take further, so it's definitely a sort of decision amongst us within the team, mm -hmm. um, we then ask for the founder or for the founding team to pitch in front of the whole investment team. And again, that's also an opportunity for both sides to get to know the sure. other side because you will end up working quite closely together once we invest. And so we want to make sure that obviously both sides want to have that partner on by their side. Right. So there are many, many important points that I want to touch on. Mm -hmm. So the first one, the pitch deck. What are you looking for in a pitch deck? How do you validate whether you then invite that startup to a phone call or not? Uh, so pitch deck, obviously, I think what is incredibly important for the pitch deck is to be informative. I mean, we want to look at the pitch deck and having read it, we want to basically understand the most important points. Um, one is obviously what problem are you trying to solve? What is the solution? Where are you in the timeline of where you're at with the product? Where are you at with the traction? Um, who is your team? So at an early stage, the team is one of our main sort of categories to look at. Um, right. You know, uh, what kind of skill sets do you have? What kind of people were you able to attract? Mm -hmm. um, so that's very important. Um, what we also like to look at is the competitive landscape. And obviously, that's part of our due diligence, and we would look at it ourselves anyway uh, any uh, as well. Yeah. But we really um, like it when we see that the founders or the business, the startup, have put some thought into the competitive landscape to understand who else is out there, what are the other players in that space, how do they differentiate themselves. So that's quite important too. Um, and last but not least, um, you know, I would say a financial plan of sorts. So mm -hmm. better understand their KPIs to date, but also what is the vision for the next few, um, you know, quarters, years, etc. And this, you know, we understand that these numbers might change. It's an early stage startup. It is not written in stone that this is what will happen. But it's important for us to understand how the founders 
think about their business and whether their expectations are realistic. So this is another aspect that I would be looking for in a deck. Right. Are there any templates of a pitch deck that you say this is a good structure or a good template to con consider when you actually create your own? So we as a business actually discussed it quite recently, whether we should make some templates available. Um, but we think that um, firstly, it's almost like a business card. So how you present yourself in a deck is also partially a reflection of you as a business and as a team. So right. it's important that, you know, it comes from you and is not sort of imposed by us. Yeah. Secondly, Every deck will be slightly different depending on the business model, the stage of the business. And, and so um, I don't think there is quite one size fits all that would be simplifying it a bit too much. Uh, but there are certainly some good ones online, I mm -hmm. think, that you could find to inspire you um, with formatting and so forth. Right. I personally like the Guy Kawasaki. I think the only 10 slides you need or anything of that sort. I don't know the exact title, but. Absolutely. The other thing that I would actually also add is um, don't make your slides too busy. Um, keep it short. That's another one of those elevator pitch skills, right? If you can put across a complex idea in simple terms so everybody understands, that I think is a huge skill and you can show it off already at deck level. So, um, and, and, you know, you're more encouraging people to read through the actual whole deck if right. it's not too text heavy. <laughs> yeah. So the more you can say with less words, the, the better impression you leave it, basically. Absolutely. You have to think about it. We look at, uh, and I think, uh, you know, we will talk about this maybe later, but we look at over 3000 startups yeah. per year and we're quite a small team. We get a lot of requests. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it, you're making our job almost easier sure. if you make it shorter yeah. and um, the chances of us reading through the whole deck and really paying attention to it are much higher, I yeah. think, personally, at least for me. Not every Absolutely. VC might be the same. For me, that's the case. Yeah. So then the next step was the call that you mentioned. So how long does that call take and what do you discuss on that call? So typically, I like to make it, uh, I find based on my experience that half an hour can sometimes be a little too short mm -hmm. and an hour a little bit too long. Okay. So I, I have an odd time, which is 45 minutes. And again, this is me personally, not everybody does it that way. Um, and it also depends on how many questions I have on the back of the deck or how many challenges I want to sort of put forward. Um, sometimes the conversation flows really easily and it goes quite fast. Sometimes it takes a bit longer to put a point across. It also entirely depends on the business and what they're sure. doing. Um, so between half an hour and 45 minutes, I think is the sweet spot. Yeah. And what you discussed there, obviously the open questions that you have, but then you also need to probably reach a conclusion and say whether you want to invite them to then also come to pitch that will be the investment committee that we will talk about in a second but what else is like the the end of the call what else do you discuss besides the the questions what do you look for well we will always ask where you are at with your uh, mm -hmm. fundraising we want right. to understand sort of what your ambitions are how far along are you it also gives us an indication how fast we have to make a decision okay. um and you know, what the composition is, if they already have a term sheet on the table or, you know, if they're already in discussions with someone at a more advanced level. Mm -hmm. um, typically, that would be indicative of what the syndicate might look like further down the line. Yeah. So we would ask about that. 
Um, and I guess actually what I always like to ask, um, again, maybe not for everyone, but I always like to ask what they're looking for mm -hmm. in an investor. I think that's an incredibly important question and one that maybe not everybody bothers to ask because everybody always thinks that it's the startups selling themselves to the VCs, right. which is not always the case and shouldn't always be the case. Um, so I always ask what they are, they are looking for uh, mm -hmm. from an investor because it also helps me to assess how we can be helpful in the future. Right. I actually wanted to ask that later, but this is actually a good time to, to ask it right here. You know, now you have so many startups out there, but you also have so much money basically laying around in the streets because of the low interest rates and so on. So who has the higher leverage from your perspective, the VC investor or the startup? I think it entirely depends on the situation. And... Um, but I would say probably, uh, you know, it's the startups um, that probably have more uh, more choice these days. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Having said that, that's why it's incredibly important you choose your investors wisely. And right. that's why I always ask that question at the end of the phone call, um, because ultimately the money is a very, I mean, it's an aspect, but I would maybe controversially somewhat claim it's a very small part of being an investor. And I think that... Um, investors can open doors to make your business propel and go through the roof, uh, which otherwise maybe wouldn't wouldn't have happened or which otherwise would have taken a bit longer, for example. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they can give you insights or sort of ideas that you haven't thought about before because they give you a different perspective. So it's incredibly important to understand who your partner is on that level right. and what they can bring to the table. Got it. You also talked about the investment committee meetings uh, every Monday. Mm. So then you had the phone call with a startup. What do you discuss internally with your team and who is actually part of that committee? So it's our entire investment team. So it's uh, all my colleagues on the team who, um, who, who look after portfolio companies and also do deal flows and, and, and sort of are investing. Um, it's not just the partners. Um, mm -hmm. So at Red Alpine, it's a fairly democratic decision um, and we see it as sort of a team conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so I think firstly, we present the case. So whoever sort of spoke to the startup and is bought into the idea will present the case. And then the team will sort of ask certain questions. It's almost like you're pitching on behalf of the company right. to the rest of the team. <laughs> and the good thing is that our team is incredibly diverse with really incredible skill sets in lots of um, different areas. So we have a PhD in law, we have a medic, uh, we have a physics PhD, nice. and they all bring a very different perspective. So um, this is another one of those sort of intellectual exercises, if you will, where sure. I am being challenged about my convictions and, and my assumptions for the business. And it can be anything. It can be anything from, uh, you know, do they believe that it's going to work uh, for this particular market? Mm -hmm. Can there be um, an international play? Can they expand? Is it a big enough opportunity? Does the stage at which they are make sense for us as a fund? So it's all these sort of conversations um, that, that we're having at that stage. Got it. And then how do you actually make that decision? Does everybody have to agree to move forward or do you say, okay, the maturity is enough or how do you actually make that decision then to move forward with the startup that you're discussing? So 
Um, not everybody has to be entirely bought in because okay. the startup should still have the opportunity to win over some of <laughs> us uh, during yeah. their pitch. Um, but I think that if there was a very strong no, um, mm-hmm. a conviction no, based on compelling reasoning, then yeah. we would probably be a bit more apprehensive. But if okay. the majority of us want to find out more, are, are intrigued enough, have the so-called in German Bauchgefühl, so the gut right. feeling that mm, this might be something, mm-hmm. then we would still go ahead with the pitch. Okay. So it's more like not everybody has to say yes, but there shouldn't be a really strong no to move forward. Exactly. But the no has to have, uh, you know, some very valid and fundamental reasoning. Yeah. It can't just be a no sure. because I feel that way. Yeah, I'm sure you, you keep them up to that responsibility to come up with a good judgment why it's a no. Exactly. So then how, how often does that actually happen? Like how many cases do you get discussed on a weekly basis and how many of those get actually invited to pitch and meet you in person? So on a weekly basis, I mean, that differs again, but we would probably discuss between maybe three to 10 sort of cases, I would say, depending. Um, And out of those, I mean, we, it's very time consuming to do those pitches. So we also have to be um, quite strict at times, unfortunately, um, how we use those slots for the, um, for the pitching. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically we would probably have, uh, three or four pitches, maybe every two weeks or so. Okay. Got it. And yeah, walk us through such a, a pitch day. What happens there? Well, it's not even a day. Um, we're quite strict with times, mm-hmm. um, sticking to our very Swiss efficient dealings, <laughs> I guess. Um, so it's if each company typically has half an hour. And within that half an hour, they have 10 minutes to pitch their idea. Mm-hmm. Then we have 10 minutes for Q&A. And then we will have a 10-minute internal discussion about what we thought of the pitch. Mm -hmm. And then we move on to the next. So it's a very short interaction really at that stage, um, which is partially also forcing uh, the founders to sell themselves in a very short period of time. And I think that's another maybe indirect test in a way, if you will, to see how well they can sell themselves in this short period of time. And, um, and yeah, that, that's typically it. And we have four of those sessions, mm-hmm. three of those sessions. So it's between one and a half, two hours okay. during the day. Um, and typically we would then make a final decision the following week, um, during our deal flow meeting on a Monday. Got it. And what makes uh, the decision there? Who gets moved forward and who basically drops out? Of the process again, it's the whole team. Yeah. Um, I think that um, you know it's it's generally a very democratic decision. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the last word will always sort of belong to the partners, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but they are very much always interested in our opinion. And if one of us felt very strongly one way or another, mm-hmm. um, they would want to have a conversation about it. Got it. Now you we talked about the internal decision making process and also how you then actually decide whether to move forward or, or not with a potential investment. I also wonder, you know, what you're looking for in startups, you know, are there any revenue numbers or at least some revenue thresholds that you're looking for? The team I can imagine at the early stages you are investing is, is a crucial part. What are the, the criteria that you look for that make a startup a potential good fit or not? 
So there's a lot of different things we look at, of course. Um, so firstly, there's the more high level one, which is sort of whether it fits into our scope as a business. So mm. it has to be early stage, Red Alpine invest at seed and series A stage. So uh, it has to sort of fit within that realm. Right. Um, typically, we would want to see some sort of revenue and some sort of traction and at least a kind of MVP. Um, and But first and foremost, of course, again, the team would probably be the first assessment point that we make. Yeah. It's incredibly important to us. We look at sort of um, whether the founders have complementing skill sets. Mm -hmm. And we look at whether they had some previous startup experience. Um, are they sort of uh, serial entrepreneurs or have they come out of other startups that we know of? Um, what, uh, how do they present? Uh, how do they come across? Do we think that we can sort of build something together with them? Do they have what it takes to execute and turn their vision into realities? This is incredibly important. Um, then, as I mentioned, traction, revenues, maybe at seed stage, not super necessary, but mm -hmm. some kind of traction to show that, you know, there is some proof of concept or uh, problem market, um, product market fit. Um, I think is something that we would certainly want to see. Um, what would convince you there if you don't have any revenues to start up? Would you have any letter of intent that I think is a bit vague, but what would really convince you there to say, hey, they don't have any revenue, but it's still a very promising startup to consider? So I don't think it's any one thing that would convince us. Okay. I think it's sort of the entirety of it. So it's the idea, it's the market potential, it's the team, um, it's the gut feeling. Um, but in terms of revenues, I think what would convince us is um, letters of intent, you're right, they are fairly vague. Um, I think that um, we could probably have some phone calls or reference calls with some of the companies that they're working with, some of the customers they're working with to understand why they would use this product, for example, mm -hmm. why they think it's exceptional and why they would be willing to pay for it. Um, right. And I think that would be another sort of way to, to, to clarify whether this is something, um, even without revenues, we would want to pursue further. Mm -hmm. And what role does your personal network that you mentioned in the beginning that you took away from Goldman Sachs, basically in your other uh, engagements, what role does your personal network play to validate a potential investment case? So several. Um, firstly, if um, that network is somehow connected to the founders, um, we we would make reference calls. So we would ask about them as people. Um, sure. And, you know, quite frankly, some startups do that with us as well. They want to talk to other portfolio companies um, to ask how it is working with us. Um, so we would probably do the same. Um, sometimes I use the network to inquire about particular sectors or about part a particular problem space because I might have someone who's an expert in that field. Mm -hmm. And I would ask them, what do you think of this? Um, do you think that um, there is a huge market opportunity? Um, do you think it's already too competitive? Is there space for more players? So these are the sort of questions I would ask someone if I knew that they were sort of expert in that field. Sure. Um, yeah, I think those would be the main two parts at that due diligence uh, level where I would mm. use that input uh, from my network. Got it. Expertise and knowledge of the team or the founders. Right. We talked about the revenue part. People also asked about the product part. So you might not have any revenue, but you also might not even have your product finished or in the market. Mm. So what role does that play? Are you looking for a product or at least a prototype already in the market or 
what is your philosophy there? Typically, yes. Um, typically, we would like to see some sort of MVP. The product by no means has to be finished, sure. um, but we would like to see some sort of, um, you know, MVP exactly. Yeah. Um, so something that is the beginning of the vision or, you know, some sort of implementation of the vision, I guess. Um, one has to differentiate between uh, sort of serial entrepreneurs who may have founded something in the past or have mm. worked at, you know, unicorn companies and seen them grow in the past. Um, for these kind of founders, we would probably need less of a proof of these things um, because they've done it before, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, but if someone is a first time founder, then we would sort of feel more comfortable if they had something in place already. Yeah. How likely is it that you invest in first-time founders or also in single founders? I've got to be honest, we're not big fans of single founders mm -hmm. and we do it rather rarely. Um, it's it, There is never a definite no from mm -hmm. us and I think every case is worth reviewing individually. Uh, but it is definitely um, less frequent that we would invest in single founders or in first time founders or you know people who don't come from the startup world um, right. who don't really have a product or any traction or revenues yeah. um, that would be quite difficult to justify probably it wouldn't mean that we wouldn't want to work with them at all mm -hmm. typically we would simply say we really like your idea it's just simply a little bit too early for us but yeah. we would like to stay in touch for potentially the next rounds and how does that then look like? If you say we want to stay in touch, um, do you proactively reach out to them or is it like they have to take the initiative uh, to reinitiate the contact and what kind of development are you looking for if you say that to a startup? So I get that question a lot. I can uh, imagine, yeah. <laughs> um, you can't really put a number on it. I think okay. it's very difficult to scientifically say if you reach this level, then we will definitely invest because it again, it depends on the entirety. It depends on how the product has evolved, but also how the team has evolved, um, what sort of milestones they have reached over time. And those can mm -hmm. be different milestones for different companies. Um, in the case of B2B, for example, sales take sales cycles are much longer, right? right. So you have to take these things into account. Yeah. But um, to answer your previous question about who has to be proactive, I think it works both ways okay. and both parties reach out every now and then. Um, some startups put me on their sort of newsletter or update uh, email mm. um, and every now and then I get sort of updates from them about where they are yeah. and which milestones they've reached. It happens quite frequently, actually. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it works both ways, I would say. Got it. And now I remember we stopped at, you know, your internal decision making like up to one week after the pitch happened. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you do after you made that decision or is that already the final investment decision where you say, yes, we're going to invest that amount of money in this company or is there anything else coming besides the legal part, of course? So, yes, uh, sometimes we may want to do some follow up questions mm -hmm. or we may want to speak to some additional people from the team or we may want to speak to their previous investors if they have any. So there may certainly be some little follow-up steps that we take mm -hmm. and um, in terms of the term sheet that's often a negotiation. So it's not as easy as to say this is what we will do, take <laughs> right. it or leave it. It's very often a conversation mm -hmm. and understanding where the founders are coming from, what they're after and how we can sort of fit in into that structure. 
Is it more common that the founders make an offer and say, we look for that amount of money, this could be your ticket, that's the valuation? Or do you also heavily already influence or make even a first suggestion on that part? I think typically the first suggestion should really come from the founders. Um, and I tell you why. I think they should have thought about how much they need to get to the next milestone that will allow them to do the next round at a higher valuation. And that again is another test of have you thought this through? Have you looked at your financial plan? Have you looked at how much your burn will be, what you want to achieve, how many people you will need to hire to get there? Yeah. And um, that's a thought exercise that is essentially tested when you when yeah. you tell us how big you want the round to be. Um, so typically, it would be the founders who first make a suggestion. Mm -hmm. And then we can come up with a counter offer, for example. And we would typically also explain why we think that it should be this and not that, for example. And it could go both ways. We might say sure. you need more, or we might say, I think at this stage you should do a smaller ticket and then yeah. do a follow-up you know, later on. So it could go both ways, but it's, it's a two-way street and it's a conversation. Makes sense. And also in that regard, you know, the valuation is the critical question, right? So how do you come to the right valuation at such an early stage? That feels like rocket science sometimes. <laughs> Yes, I think that um, it's very difficult and um, it's, it, there are certain guidelines um, within such early stages, what you're expected sort of to, to invest and at what valuation. So the ticket size will very often direct what the valuation should be. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, um, VCs also have a fiduciary duty towards their LPs. So yeah. it has to make financial sense for us to get involved and invest. So it has to be done in, within certain parameters, I guess. Yeah. Um, but again, I think it boils down to the entirety of the business. So mm -hmm. the team, the product, where they're at, uh, how fast they've been moving, you know, uh, how quickly they can sort of take over the market, if you will, yeah. um, and expand. And I think all of these things will give us an indication of what the valuation should roughly be. Right. Let's take a, a B2B software startup for as an example, right? Mm -hmm. Are, is there any house number that you can give us for the seed and the Series A stage about the total number approximately your share of that uh, round and also the more or less valuation size? I, I don't think it's that easy. Okay. I don't, again, I don't think it's a one size fits all. Um, I don't think it's news to anyone. And I think that most VCs sort of move within those parameters. I don't think it's Red Alpine specific, but typically you would probably look at getting a 15 to 25% stake yeah. um, for your investment, especially at an early stage where the risks are obviously a little bit higher. Sure. Um, but again, the valuation and the ticket size is sort of entirely on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, got it. Now, let's also look at the investment cases. Usually, there are some favorite investments where you say, hey, we had a huge return or this is such a great team. If you think about favorite investments, what comes to mind? <laughs> um, so I don't have a favorite investment. It's kind of like asking a parent <laughs> who the favorite <laughs> child is. Um, so I, d I don't have a favorite investment. Um, mm -hmm. I think we had conviction about all of our portfolio companies. That's why we invested in them and um, we are fully supportive of them. 
um, now as well, all of them. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think there is a favorite investment. I would only say that I might have a slight bias towards the companies that I'm looking after. Sure. <laughs> uh, purely because I'm, I have a sort of a more closer relationship with them and I interact yeah. with them more often. Um, so I think that uh, that's my only bias there. But otherwise, you know, we, we believe and I actually work also on some companies that I don't look after day to day as well, okay. um, depending on what the need is. And I think they all have a fantastic, um, you know, product to offer. And therefore, I can't really answer that question. Got it. <laughs> Before we continue with the show, we'd like to introduce you to Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business, the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Managing internal processes manually and on paper wastes an incredible amount of time. That's why Clara digitizes everything, allowing you to focus on what really matters your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. Again, that's clara.ch. And now, on with the show. Maybe you can answer the other question. Is there any sort of an anti-portfolio, you know, companies where you had the chance but missed to invest, but now looking back, you wish you actually had invested? So I will disappoint you with that answer as well. I've only been at Red Alpine since March, which means that the people that unfortunately I had to say no to, um, I still don't know what has quite Fair become point. of them. <laughs> so it's very difficult yeah. uh, to answer that question. But uh, if you ask me next year, I will hopefully have a better answer. <laughs> Having said that, I think that, um, you know, it's not... Hopefully, uh, when we speak to founders and we talk to them about why we can't invest, they often understand that we would like to still be considered for the next round. So mm -hmm. for me, it's not walking away. It's more pausing until right. the time is more appropriate for a Red Alpine investment. So, you know, um, I wouldn't say that I quite feel yet mm -hmm. that I missed out on an investment, but ask me next year. <laughs> Got it. Also, one other question, we always touch it a bit along the process, but maybe you want to add anything in terms of due diligence, because people you know, that have never walked through such a process, they are very curious, like, what else is there? What should I prepare? What is like critical that you look at? So despite the points that we already touched upon, is there anything that you would like to add in terms of due diligence that you do? Absolutely. And I say it as an investor, but also as a former entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. What is super important is from day one to have very good bookkeeping and be yeah. very structured and disciplined about keeping a data room with all the important documents. The reason for that is, and you will need this throughout your, your business's life with every um, funding round that you do. And if you haven't done it from the start, it will take a long time for you to organize it. So this is a learning from my time when I was still in startups myself. Yeah. Uh, as an investor, obviously, it speeds up the process massively, right? Because right. if you already have a data room, you open it up to us, we can straight away um, get the lawyers involved to look at the legal documents. Mm -hmm. uh, we can straight away start looking through um, the additional docs ourselves. And the process is just smoother and quicker. And I yeah. think everybody agrees um, fundraising can sometimes not be very much fun for founders. They probably want to get it out of the way as soon as possible. Yeah. So this helps to move the process along as well. Right. In that data room, what are you looking for? You mentioned contracts with your clients, employee contracts. I can imagine what right. else should be in there. 
I mean, it could be anything, even things like um, your rental agreement, um, right. your any IP related matters, mm -hmm. any regulatory matters, especially that's applicable for life science um, investments, um, anything to do. So what we like to look at is also CVs, at least of the executive team, um, to understand who they are, what is their profile, um, um, any kind of contracts that they entered into, um, you know, that any obligations they might have, um, you know, finances, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so anything to do with finances, um, the status of their bank account. I mean, the usual things yeah. that any prudent investor should typically look at. Right. Now, they, uh, the startup, the imaginary startup that we're talking about, <laughs> survives the due diligence check, uh, got the approval for investment from your side. Yeah. Now, how do you actually support the startup? So you, you talked about the importance of selecting the right investors. Mm -hmm. So how do you actually support the startups, startups then also be, build a successful company? So we obviously try to support them with anything they might need at any which point, which might mm -hmm. be different things at different times. Um, Firstly, I will refer back to our network. So we have a very strong network amongst our LPs, amongst our personal relationships. Um, we can help with our network to open up doors for business opportunities, for executive searches. So um, mm. obviously we invest at critical times in a company when they start growing and building a team. So we try to help as much as possible with executive hires or any other key, um, key role, um, filling any other key roles. Um, what else we do is um, try to make introductions when they want to have another funding round. So mm -hmm. at the next stages, prepare them for those, guide them what will be important for the next stage, how to set themselves up and position themselves to have the best possible situation for the next round. Mm -hmm. Obviously, introductions to our peers, um, our other VCs who may be more later stage investors. Um, and, and much further down the line, of course, with exits. So we have a network, of course, of M&A consultants and um, we, we, we try to facilitate um, or give access to information around that. I think what is super important to understand as well is that I think very often being a founder is a very lonely job, to be fair. You have mm -hmm. to always be on the ball. You always have to have all the answers. Um, you're being questioned by investors. You're being challenged by your employees. Employees look up to you to be the leader and always, um, you know, know what's right. And I think that, um, you know, it's our job as investors to, to sort of support them through those very, very, um, you know, big, exciting, but also sometimes very challenging times. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think it's being the sounding board, um, maybe a buddy they can, you know, share some thoughts with and maybe get some feedback on. Yeah. And I hope that's how our portfolio companies view it, um, that they can always come to us with any questions or worries or concerns, because ultimately, you know, uh, we want to make sure that the founders feel that they're being supported in how right. They bring the company forward. Yeah. You said that they can come to you. So how much is that support driven by you? And you really go to the companies and say, hey, you could do this, you could do that. And how much is it actually, we are here, but you got to come and ask us. Mm. I think it is a very fine balance. You want to let the founder be the founder. Mm -hmm. um, it, ultimately, it's their baby. 
It, it's it's their idea. It's their sort of brainchild. And if we didn't think that they had what it takes, we wouldn't have invested in them. So right. it's very important to also give them the space to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that... Um, very often, unless we see something obviously that we might want to sort of our add our two cents to, if you will, based on our own experience, and sometimes these might be just suggestions, um, very often it's a case of them feeling comfortable enough to come to us as well and bounce some ideas of us. With right. a lot of the founders, I'm on WhatsApp, we speak almost daily, so it, it's almost like a friendship develops, I would like to think, almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would like to think that they would feel comfortable to come with us to us if they had yeah. an issue. But it's a two-way street, and um, yeah. you know, I, I think it has to be a balanced approach. Mm-hmm. Got it. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned the exit, where you also can support with M&A consultants and so on. How much of a role does the exit play when you actually do make the investment decision? Because at the end, ultimately, you are a fund. You have to also deliver returns to your LPs and investors. Of course. So how do you actually think about the potential exit when you decide about making an investment in the first place? So I think there are two aspects to it. One is what are the possibilities of an exit, i.e. is the business a kind of business or a kind of business model that has a business opportunity at some point in the future, Mm -hmm. whether via an IPO or acquisition or otherwise. Um, Because we invest so early on, the exit for us personally might also be a secondary with a PE fund, for example. It doesn't have to be IPO or acquisition necessarily. It's something to keep in mind. And the other aspect is to understand whether there is even an ambition or a vision from the founders Mm -hmm. to be in that exit scenario at some point in the future. Um, And you have to be on the same page, more or less, that this is something that may or may not happen at some point in the future, or that we also have a responsibility towards our LPs And even if it's not the traditional exit as we know it, we may no longer be a shareholder at some point in the future within the business. But I think everybody kind of understands that or should understand it at least, that this is how it works. But of course, um, we we should be aligned in how we think about this. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important. But I can also imagine that at a certain point in time, you will have to make this return on your Mm -hmm. investment. The founders might have a different, you know, feeling or strategy how they would like to move forward. So although you are invested in the same company, it can be that you are not aligned and don't share the same interests. Mm. How do you deal with that potential conflict that you have there? As I mentioned uh, before, it doesn't have to be an IPO and it doesn't have to be a acquisition. Um, I can totally understand why that might seem a little bit controversial for some founders. Um, You know, they're attached Uh, again, to the business that they've built from the ground up, they may not want to sell it, you know, Mm -hmm. or they may think IPO is not the right way to go right now. Um, But for us as an early stage investor, um, you know, that can be a secondary with a PE fund, um, in which case it shouldn't typically really impact the startup to a huge degree, um, depending obviously on our shareholding and where we are at. Having said that, you know, again, early stage investors, by the time the company hopefully reaches, you know, a a unicorn status, for example, (laughs) in the future, they're probably, you know, we're probably quite a small part of the overall game, quite frankly. So I would like to think that it's not, it's not such a big deal for them, but of course it's always a conversation and it's always a dialogue. And I Mm -hmm. think it's important to stay transparent and open about 
everybody's incentives and um, you know needs in the transaction. Got it. So now you walked us through the investment process and we started with your workday basically. Mm -hmm. Now we zoom out a bit again to the basically the VC business in the background. Mm -hmm. You mentioned you screen more than 3000 deals per year. I just asked like, how do you handle that workload? That's an insane amount of pitches and deals <laughs> that you have to screen. That's very true, uh, but that's our job, right? Um, so I think the way we go about it is firstly, we are a very integrated team, I would say. Um, that's what I really enjoy about Red Alpine. We are, we are very much working together as a unit. Mm -hmm. And that also means that we can rely on each other's individual expertise and backgrounds for feedback, which means that you can come to a conclusion sometimes much quicker. So if I look yeah. at a health tech company, for instance, I can ask out my medic colleague, or if sure. I look at a legal tech company, I can always pick the brain of my lawyer colleague um, and ask him, is that even a thing? Or is that a problem? How big do you think is this problem? Mm -hmm. um, so firstly, that makes the process much quicker. Yeah. But secondly, um, I think with time, you sort of learn to pick up on little subtle things um, that send you signals whether this is something you want to pursue and this boils back down to this sort of gut feel as well so mm -hmm. you know you look at it it's kind of like going for millions of CVs um, you know you pick up on certain things that immediately jump out as oh I want to find out more um, and that's why I say that a deck is very often your business card. And it's incredibly important to get it right um, because it can either uh, capture my imagination, captivate me, and I want to find out more. I just need to speak to you tomorrow to learn mm -hmm. more. Or, um, you know, it might put me off even though it's a fantastic product and an amazing team. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a challenge and it's a skill that one builds over time, I think. But it helps that um, we have such an integrated team again and we can sort of rely on other people's inputs to make mm -hmm. the right decisions. Nice. And the other question that we got from the community is basically who actually invests in Red Alpine's fund? So where does the money that you then invest yourself come from? Very good question. And I guess not a lot of people know that maybe. Right. Um, so obviously we have a very, we've been around uh, since 2007, I believe. So we have quite a bit of a track record by now. And um, we have a very tight-knit uh, community of LPs that are very deeply ingrained also in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, our LPs, they can range from family offices and individuals through to institutions such as pension funds, insurance companies, fund of funds. Um, you know, sometimes it's private banks. So it's, um, it really is a very big variety of, of investors. Mm -hmm. And we see it also changing over time who has more interest, um, and who wants to get more exposure to that tech world. And right. we, we found that there is more and more interest in that space. Um, from from unlikely players <laughs> like like who for example well i think that typically um in the past um family offices weren't that active and mm -hmm. i think they're becoming more and more interested in the space um so this may not necessarily be the case for us mm -hmm. um we're in switzerland um, lots of family offices are at our doorsteps um but uh, from what i've seen and heard from other funds it's it's something that has sort of evolved over the years now and is becoming a bit more apparent is that because of the low interest rates that you are looking for alternative investments or is also the the whole startup ecosystem just you know getting more mature and more attractive therefore 
I think it's a variety of things, um, some of which are the ones that you just mentioned exactly. I think especially the European VC space or tech startup space is really, really maturing and catching mm -hmm. up with Silicon Valley. We have phenomenal um, educational institutions, so we have great talent coming out of them. Um, you know, living expensive, uh, expenses are lower than in Silicon Valley, which means that, um, you know, it's more affordable to invest in startups. And I think... Um, if anything, the situation that we're in now, which is COVID-19 again, I think it has increased awareness of how yeah. important digitalization will become and how important tech is going yeah. to become in our lives. And I think it has moved it forward and sped up the whole uh, process by about five years, probably. Great. I think that's a great development for the whole ecosystem. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, that's why we actually had a huge amount of deal flow actually during right. this time. So uh, yeah, we had a really good year when it comes to investing. Um, so I think it's partially, partially the result of these developments. Actually talking about deal flow, what do you do to get the deal flow? Of course, your reputation is a big part of that, but mm -hmm. what do you specifically do to attract the right deal flow? So um, to attract uh, deal flow, I think that um, what is probably the best thing to look at is our portfolio companies and asking them how it is working with us. I think that is the biggest sort of um, sign of credibility. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it would be wrong of me to speak on their behalf, um, but I think um, they will be able to really say what makes us stand out. Um, but how we get deal flow, I guess there's several different ways to do that. So there's obviously us having a thesis, doing deep dives, um, analyzing the market and proactively looking for all the different players within the space, mm. and then hopefully fishing out the best one. <laughs> and there's obviously also um, our network. So it's our current portfolio companies that recommend other companies. It's it's uh, people who leave our portfolio companies to start something of their own, for example, who know us from their time at the portfolio company. Yeah. There's our LPs, uh, the Angel Investing Network. We also are mentors at quite a lot of um, events or or um, or undertakings, I guess. Um, and all these places help us to also spot the talent. Yeah. We are very early stage investors. So we often talk to founders when they're still in stealth mode and before they even need any funding um, sure. because we would like to establish this relationship early. So when they're ready for the funding round, they think of us. Right. Um, so that's probably the way we try to get um, get deal flow apart from the usual ones, which is sort of database-based um, you know, searches, etc. Yeah. A lot of it is our very much relationship-based and network-based though. Makes sense. So in your day job, you're hunting for unicorns, basically. <laughs> but if we put that the other way, sadly, you're also sort of a unicorn, a female VC in a purely or not purely, but mainly male dominated mm -hmm. world. So how is it to be a, a female VC? <laughs> so I, I'm obviously not a man, so I don't want to jump to conclusions, <laughs> but I like to think it's similar <laughs> to how it is for a man. Um, but jokes aside, I mean, I, I think that it entirely depends on which fund you're at and mm -hmm. what kind of team you're surrounded by. And I think it's a very individual perception on a case by case basis. Right. For me personally, I don't see any difference. Um, 
you know, at Red Alpine, I'm being treated just like my other colleagues are. And so I can't really answer that question. Uh, I think it's the same as my male colleagues. Um, but obviously, I'm fully aware that, unfortunately, it's not the case in all the VCs out there and for all female VCs. Maybe that was one interesting question that we got. Is there some sort of hidden advantage of being a female VC? So <laughs> you cannot speak of any disadvantages, uh, or at least not that we are aware of, but maybe you have some hidden advantages. If there are, then tell me because I haven't <laughs> figured it out yet. Um, but um, I would like to think, or I hope, um, that by having a female VC, we encourage more female founders to knock on our doors and pitch to us. Mm -hmm. um, so I hope that we we make them feel more comfortable having another professional uh, female at the table. Um, I would, I would, I, I really hope that uh, female founders around the world feel equally comfortable pitching to men and women. Mm -hmm. But if having a woman at the table makes them more comfortable, that I hope, then I hope that this is sort of the advantage that we bring to Red Alpine. Um, but I can't think of anything else really apart from the fact that if anything, it's an advantage to the fund. Um, because it's been scientifically proven that the more diversity you have in a team, the better the returns are. Absolutely. So, um, I'd like to think that, you know, we bring something good to the table. Right. And also a good call to action to all female founders listening to this. Reach Absolutely. out to Alex. Absolutely. <laughs> Anytime. I, I'd love to hear from you. And also, you know, when you actually invest, do you also focus on this diversity aspect of looking for a, a female founder or part of the founding team? Or how do you go about that, that one with your perspective? So we invest in the best teams we find uh, with the best business ideas. Mm -hmm. And we invest purely on, on the basis of that. And gender doesn't play a part in that. Okay. Having said that, um, over 30% of our founding and executive teams within our portfolio are female. It's not quite 50-50 yet, but well, it's a good yeah. start, I hope. Much better than average, I exactly. would say. I, I would like to think so too. Um, it's not by design though. It's purely because they were the best teams that we have spoken to and we wanted to be part of their journey. On a very personal level, I am not a big fan of... Um, of positive discrimination. And the reason for that is, is that I think it very often undermines the achievement of women, the achievements of women who actually got there purely on merit. And, um, you know, I personally have received some comments in the past that would be suggestive of something else that, you know, I got to where I got to because I'm a woman. And I think it's really unfair. Yeah. And that's why I'm not a big fan of positive discrimination. Um, what I do, however, know is that diversity, whether gender or otherwise, is incredibly important. And because, again, we are part of a startup at a very, very early stage mm -hmm. um, and they're building teams, we try to really encourage and enhance the importance of having a diverse team. Um, so this is where we do like to push the boundaries a little nice. bit and, and really question or challenge why there's not more of people other than yourself yeah. in your team. Got it. And what do you think is the reason that there are not more female VCs out there? Is there anything that could be done about that? 
So firstly, I don't think it's a VC-specific problem. I mean, I've been exposed to a lot of sectors and more often than not, I was the only woman at the table. So unfortunately, I think that this is a problem that touches in a lot of sectors and a lot of industries. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there are many, many reasons and it's probably not any one reason that is, you know, leading to this. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the idea of conscious segregation, which is the very questioning right now. The fact that people assume or I should assume that I'm different because I'm a female and I'm being asked these questions because I'm a woman. And then there is the notion of a subconscious bias, um, which is has been publicized greatly. Um, and a lot of big tech companies are now introducing training on that that front, although academic papers suggest that it doesn't really fundamentally change our behavior. Mm -hmm. There might be the problem of lack of role models. So traditionally, uh, financial institutions were very male dominated, which means that they are now at senior positions and not a lot of women are there up there. I think that VCs are actually trying uh, proactively to hire more women on a junior level. I think we're getting there. Mm -hmm. I think what we're missing is the senior level. women that can sort of show, yes, you can overcome the, you know, the so-called um, glass ceiling and you, you can sort of get to the management executive decision-making position. Um, and some people might claim that it's a much more fundamental cultural societal problem, mm-hmm. that the way women and men are brought up as children already has a huge impact on what subjects you choose at school, what subjects you choose at university. Um, I mean, I don't know the exact stats, but when I challenged a company why they don't have more uh, female engineers, they said, well, um, the best college for engineering or computer science right now, only 17% of those who study those subjects are women and even less of those do deep tech. So, um, you know, it, it, you have a much smaller pool to choose from to begin with. Sure. I think specific to VC, maybe another aspect is that they're usually small institutions uh, with maybe not even a dedicated HR person mm-hmm. um, to come up with a sort of elaborate strategy on diversity and secondly, they hire very infrequently. So, um, you know, whoever from years ago has been there is still there and, sure. you know, may not necessarily hire lots of new people to make that diversity problem go away. Yeah. So there are several issues. This is not an exhaustive list. It's just a few ideas and not any one of them is pop- probably contributing to that problem. But still, one can tell that you have made a lot of thinking around that topic and also, you know, have your own experience with the startups that you were running. And I think that people can take these little pieces and then continue the thinking on their own. Absolutely. I mean, I'm very passionate about the topic and I did put some thought about uh, some thought into it in the past, especially in tech startups, um, where I was part of growing teams and it was incredibly important to get this right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not an easy problem to solve. I can imagine. No. (laughs) Now, to wrap up this episode, um, I'm curious to learn more about how you continue to educate yourself and learn. Are there any resources or gadgets that you can recommend, you know, that add a tremendous bonus or added value to your daily life? It's an interesting question. I think that I educate myself a lot by talking to people. Mm-hmm. I think uh, challenging, and I think there's not in. it's ironic. I'm in tech, I invest in tech, yeah. but I think that because of tech, um, we 
don't interact enough with one another and challenge each other's ideas in person, uh, which now with COVID is made even harder. But sure. I think that talking to people, uh, taking on board other points of views really is a, a huge tool that doesn't require a lot of effort or a lot of time or money, I guess. Um, so I like to also talk to people who have completely different backgrounds to mine to mm -hmm. hear their opinions on matters. Um, secondly, I mean, just reading um, and reading resources that not everybody else reads. Um, so really branch out a little bit, read blog posts of, of, of people who might be in a different area to yourself, uh, do curious other things, um, understand the world around you. Because really, when you understand what's going on around you, you will understand what will really be the next Mm. big invention or innovation that will change the way people uh, work or live um, or spend their time. And I think that's incredibly important to sort of be in touch with what's happening around you. Right. Is there any, you know, one or two blog names that come to mind that you enjoy reading yourself? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I receive newsletters, um, mm -hmm. some of which, God, I would have to dig out what they're called. Um, I can send them to you and you can add that maybe to the sure, description. Can, but uh, there are a few newsletters that I read. And most of them are also a combination of different um, news outlets, uh, which means that you get sort of snippets from different sources, which nice. I think is always important. Yeah. And the very last question, just uh, out of curiosity, you've been a founder and, and startup person yourself, and you're now on the VC world. And what you just mentioned is read pretty broadly to understand what's going on around you from people of different fields. Has that changed from when you were still active and working in a startup yourself, where probably just an assumption here, mm -hmm. we're trying to get deeper into a specific topic to then master it. Has that, you know, your way of, of reading, of learning changed in any way from being a founder to becoming a VC? I was very, very lucky in that um, the companies I worked for were had incredibly broad applications. And mm -hmm. actually I had to, my job was to find applications, which means I had to reach out to oil and gas, uh, telco companies, figure out utilities and understand how they work and how the tech could help mm -hmm. within all of those fields. And um, so I always had this curiosity for different things that I didn't know about and learn about them. Mm -hmm. And I, I, so I was lucky enough to have a job where I actually had to be very open-minded and broad-minded and figure out a lot about everything. Got it. Um, so I don't think that much has changed. I think though that typically in a startup, you absolutely have to have a focus and um, have to have a North Star that you go towards and mm -hmm. you sort of move towards. At the startups that I was working at, I was more the execution person. So yeah. there was the leader, the CEO who had the big vision mm -hmm. and it was your job to execute on that. Got and it. I think so for me, I always had to keep my eyes wide open uh, at different possibilities. Um, and I think the only difference is only that back then I was married to one idea, one vision, one technology, mm -hmm. even though it had many different applications. Whereas now I have the benefit of looking at lots of different inventions, lots of different ideas and visions, and I find it incredibly fascinating. I can fully understand that. <laughs> Alex, these were all the questions. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was a lot of fun and also very interesting to pick your brain and learn from you. Thank, Thank you so you much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
Now that you've finished listening to the episode, why not top it off with a quick rating on Apple Podcasts? It's one of the best things that you can do to help us reach more entrepreneurs just like you.